0: This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees wanna find me, and then wanna hire me. What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go Ace Never wanna see another B on some Jay Z. Farm so hard. What's up, Hampton? Host Jim Pruitt, aka Farm Dean and Ed, and I bring you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today we have a special episode but for more than one reason, of course we have super, super, super special person on to talk to us today. But this is gonna be a new series that we're gonna be hosting. And I want you guys to let me know how you feel about it. We're gonna be really targeting down a lot of the infectious disease component. So I am not gonna even attempt to be a smart person when it comes to infectious disease. I'm gonna have someone come on that's gonna be super intelligent, done these things, got out of training. So without further ado, please introduce yourself for the audience.
1: Uh, Hi everybody. Uh, My name is Besma Hassani. I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at uh, LIJ Valley Stream in the Northwell Health System um, in the greater New York City area. Um, So a little bit of background about me. Um, I'm a graduate of St. John's University um, and then went on to do my PGY-1 residency at South Shore University Hospital, um, also within the Northwell Health System, and then just recently graduated my PGY-2 in infectious diseases um, at SBH Health System in the Bronx.
0: Perfect. So we're going to go ahead and just let everyone know we're going to be talking about something that every single person has to deal with aspiration pneumonia and whether we should be doing one thing versus the other, but this is gonna be something that I know that I deal with and it really just gets me. So I wanted to really have this conversation and I think it's something that really aggravates every ID pharmacist I've ever met. So we're gonna go ahead and jump into just some background stuff and then really get into kind of the, the crux of infectious diseases and really aspiration pneumonia. So before we jump too far into that, I want to give people just a a closer kind of background of like what's going on. So can you just explain to us what is antimicrobial stewardship and why is it important in the treatment of aspiration pneumonia?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, antimicrobial stewardship is basically an initiative to help uh, measure the prescribing and the use of antimicrobials within the hospital. Um, so optimizing the utilization of antibiotics has many different benefits, including uh, protecting patients from the harms of unnecessary antibiotic use. Uh, we know that there's a lot of different side effects, first and foremost, C. diff, amongst other things um, that can be a result of inappropriate antibiotic use. Um, and it also helps combat uh, antimicrobial resistance and helps reduce costs. Um, so when we think about aspiration pneumonia, a lot of times um, we'll get into it a little in a little more detail later in the episode, but... Uh, A lot of times prescribers may give antibiotics when they don't necessarily need to be giving antibiotics or cover a lot more broadly than they necessarily need to be. Um, So antimicrobial stewardship does play a really big role in the setting of aspiration pneumonia to help optimize the antibiotics that we're using and use them at the correct times.
0: Absolutely, that's something that we, I think that The unique thing about infectious disease is that almost every pharmacist, no matter what role you play, you're going to be having to deal with antibiotics. And I think, honestly, if we took a survey out there, it's probably the number one question that all pharmacists get, no matter what specialty you're part of. I can think of transplant. I can think of oncology and the ED is going to be a big thing, cardiology, internal medicine. Everyone is going to have to deal with infections. So that's one thing we got to think about. But there are also some huge challenges that we have to talk about. So can you really just describe some of the challenges associated with antimicrobial stewardship, particularly in the hospital setting?
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the biggest things that I've noticed in my practice is that um, oftentimes prescribers are hesitant or have a fear of not treating patients adequately if they don't give antibiotics. Um, So I think we see this often with a lot of other indications as well, such as asymptomatic bacteria. That's a big one that comes to mind. Um, Prescribers are often hesitant to discontinue antibiotics or hold off starting antibiotics. If they have a patient who maybe doesn't have any urinary symptoms but came in with something like altered mental status, they're quick to jump to infection. Um, So I think that's a really big role that we can play as pharmacists in kind of educating them about the literature that's out there and what the evidence is behind treating asymptomatic bacteria. Um, And I think similarly with aspiration pneumonia, prescribers are again often quick to start antibiotics when um, we can have more of a risk benefit uh, conversation with the prescribers.
0: Absolutely. And this is something that we have to deal with almost every day to say, hey, is this patient even infected? I'm like, I always say half my job is treating the patient. The other half is treating the provider. And yeah. definitely when it comes to antibiotics, that's going to be something that we really have to look into. But as we kind of transition to antimicrobial stewardship and really starting to target a little bit more into antimicrobial stewardship and aspiration pneumonia, one of the things that I want to kind of dive into, and this is something that I'm definitely going to clip up and make sure I put front and center, one of the biggest questions that I have is how can clinical pharmacists minimize the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics in the treatment of aspiration pneumonia, if they even need it?
1: Sure. So I think an important aspect of this, I think, from the top is just understanding what aspiration pneumonia is. So a lot of uh, people actually aspirate more often than we think. There was a study that showed that as many as half of adults um, aspirate in their sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. And we know that this doesn't really turn into a pneumonia for most people. Um, So aspiration is basically an event where you um, accidentally inhale food, liquids, saliva, or vomit, um, and it goes into the respiratory tract. Um, And because so many events of aspiration go unnoticed, it can be difficult to actually quantify the incidence of aspiration pneumonia. Um, and a lot of times patients will develop, for example, an aspiration pneumonitis that won't actually progress to a pneumonia and will self-resolve within 24 to 48 hours. Mm. Um, So I think these are really important points to make when we are making our recommendations to providers because I think a lot of times providers will witness an aspiration event or know that the patient is unconscious or when they were getting intubated, they might have aspirated. Um, and they are just quick to start antibiotics immediately without really having any other evidence for the patient having pneumonia. So I think it's important to stress those um, those factors um, specifically.
0: Absolutely. So even just understanding whether or not we have this particular aspiration pneumonia versus pneumonitis, and then once we start to like, get into the conversation of coverage, I my docs are the worst. I'm not I'm, I'm just going to say it. Emergency medicine, we will vent a fly we'll bank Zosin or vanxosin or vanxepepine and, and and think we're being sophisticated by using cepapine <laughs> by just going razzle dazzle with that but can you really kind of just talk to us a little bit about again just some of the general terms like you know from the spectrum what should we be covering and how can we kind of Kind of rein everyone back in to if this is an actual bacterial infection as far as the spectrum of activity and what should we be you know we're not going too deep but what should we be using is benzosin really appropriate?
1: Sure. So I think that when we think of aspiration pneumonia, I think a lot of times people think of it as this whole other type of pneumonia that's not really in the same category as CAP or and um But generally, the guidelines kind of recommend treating it the same way. So. Um, Kind of historically, there have been some uh, studies of um, basically supporting the use of anaerobic coverage in the setting of aspiration pneumonia. Um, These studies came out uh, pretty far back in the 1970s, and they evaluated the microbiology of aspiration pneumonia. And they saw that there were actually pretty high rates of anaerobic organisms isolated. So, However, these studies often use transtracheal sampling and evaluated patients uh, late in their disease course. And these are two factors that uh, have contributed to a higher likelihood of identifying anaerobic organisms. Um, And then since then, there have been several studies of acute aspiration events in hospitalized patients that actually suggest that anaerobic bacteria do not play a major role in the etiology of aspiration pneumonia. Um, So in the most recent CAP guidelines, community-acquired pneumonia, That was published in 2019. They actually, for the first time, made recommendations on what to do in the setting of aspiration pneumonia, and they uh, actually recommend against starting anaerobic coverage um, for those patients unless they specifically have a lung abscess or empyema.
0: Absolutely, that's going to be great because I think we, when we have the guidelines, and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna shout out again, IDSA they've been kind of spot on. with their guidelines as of like 2018 I've noticed again for me a non ID person it's been really easy to read these guidelines and for two it's been really like very specific what to do and the same thing with sepsis like again you know if you have this particular organism you have this particular risk factors then you use use this and I've liked the way it's like do not do this again I love that if you don't have these lung abscess you don't have these things so now something that comes up for me is I ask my providers, hey, what is the the chest x-ray cells? What is the CT cells? There's no abscess. Then we start having a lot more evidence-based conversation about what they saw on their exam, what their diagnostic component is from something that's not pharmacy related, and then how my drugs can help with that. And I just love the fact, again, IDSA kind of put it out there, the most recent guideline, don't do this (laughs) unless you have these things going to work.
1: If you think about it physiologically as well, like anaerobes are not really going to thrive in an environment where there's so much oxygen, at least for um, obligate anaerobes. So even if you aspirate anaerobes, the likelihood of them actually surviving in an area where there's so much oxygen are pretty low. But then when you have something like a lung abscess or an emphysema, that's usually walled off, loculated. So uh, there is more of a chance for those types of organisms to survive and to cause infection.
0: Absolutely. That's going to be great. I think this is something we, we really have to see because I've seen people try to double cover for anaerobes and it really just grinds my gears and lucky my dogs are like oh should we just take a look at this And i'm like nope not at all not at all but now we, we know that we can kind of treat with something a, a little lighter we'll get into the, the specifics of which agent to use for which one a little later but i want to go into like say we're 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 fortunate and we get some cultures down in the ed with some of these patients and we're again a couple days later you're getting brought on board and you're looking at some of these patients how can the the results of these cultures and susceptibilities kind of help guide us as far as therapy especially with nine times out of ten my guys are going to start benzosin. kind of take us through that pathway of you getting a patient that's on benzosin that got that got cultures and have some results and what should we be doing about that
1: yeah so i think one of the biggest uh tools that we can use to help us de-escalate in this setting is an MRSA-PCR if your institution has it. Um, so we actually have a policy in my hospital where whenever we have a patient who has started on van- or vancomycin, I guess, for, for pneumonia, uh, pharmacists are able to just order an MRSA-PCR without, you know, contacting the provider. Um, and then we can hopefully utilize that to de-escalate vancomycin as soon as possible. Um, So I think that first and foremost, that's one of the easiest ways to kind of narrow our coverage um, straight off the bat. And then going forward, if you are lucky enough to get culture and sensitivity in the setting of pneumonia, it can be difficult to obtain sputum cultures in these patients sometimes. But if we do have them, then definitely um, just taking a look at the sensitivities. If it's, for example, an ESBL, you might want to use something like Erdapenem or Meropenem. Um, and just help optimizing. So we're not always just trying to deescalate, we're just trying to get the most optimal antibiotic we can. Um, so for example, if we have uh, strept- streptococcal uh, pneumonia, we could easily uh, deescalate to something like cefazolin. Um If the patient is taking oral therapy, we could even potentially use uh, cephalexin. So those are some examples of how we can use that uh, culture and sensitivity data to kind of uh, narrow our
0: um, antibiotic coverage. Absolutely, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think pharmacists out in the ED and pharmacists is kind of taking care of these patients early on, because I always have this 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 approach where I'm always thinking about not me, but what's going to happen two days later. And that's going to be great because again, you may have a patient that goes from the ED to an a observation unit that also gets a little worse and goes to a ward and then or goes to an ICU. And you may have different pharmacists kind of playing into that. So I, I like how just getting the MRSA nasal squat was gonna be something. Um, just off the bat, are you are we still using, again, some of these urine antigens to kind of help us out? I know that more for like Legionella. Like what's your thoughts on some of those things? Because honestly, I've seen the the ordering of those kind of drop off over the last five years, I would say.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, we still use them pretty regularly at my institution, uh, especially Legionella. Um, It does detect, I think, the majority of the strains of Legionella that we do see in the U.S. So um, Mm -hmm. we definitely are using that. And that's something I try to uh, get on board as soon as possible so we can help deescalate something like azithromycin or doxycycline, which we use for atypical coverage. Um, Typically patients with other atypical organisms, such as mycoplasma, for example, um, they're usually not sick enough to be in the hospital. They're kind of known as like a walking pneumonia. So these patients are usually gonna be on the outpatient setting. So usually if they're sick enough with pneumonia to be hospitalized, then we're more concerned about Legionella.
0: Perfect, and that's one of the things I want to kind of mention that these are all recommendations that, again, your pharmacist, your pharmacy studios, whoever's going to be, or either the recommendations you can make it the bedside, or even cooler, is these can be policies that can be made to kind of make sure these things are automatically done. So that's gonna be something that's super exciting. Now, I'm gonna get a transition here, and we're gonna we talked about this a little bit, but talking about the literature behind some of this. And we mentioned the cap guidelines kind of being the, the catch all and really giving us some 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 guidance as we move forward. Again, you mentioned one study, but can we talk about a little bit more what the current literature says about the necessity of even treating aspiration pneumonia?
1: Uh, sure. So there was um, one study that uh, specifically compared um, the time to clinical stability in patients with community-acquired aspiration pneumonia versus just plain community-acquired pneumonia. Um, so in the study, they found that with regular CAP, the median time to stability was about four days, whereas when you had community-acquired pneumonia related to aspiration, they actually saw a bimodal distribution for time to clinical stability. So they saw one peak at two days and then another peak at five days. And they found that patients who took more than two days to reach clinical stability actually did worse. So these patients had higher rates of mortality. Um, These patients um, who were clinically stable at two days actually didn't require a higher level of care. And the quick recovery may also be attributed to the aspiration actually causing pneumonitis rather than pneumonia. Um, So this could also help uh, support shorter durations of therapy of antibiotics for these patients
0: perfect yeah and that's one of the big things i want to really point out that we have data on this like we don't have to sit here and wait if, it, if you're seven days out like okay we got to figure some different things you know what's going on and really just go from there really talk about the data and we're going to link all of this in the show notes for you guys that are going to read some of these things as well and kind of thinking about that as well um as far as the evidence needing anaerobic coverage you mentioned it before but like again we we do this quite often and what i traditionally see is either vanxosin because we, we're, we're nervous or if they're not sick enough they're going to go to the unicef them we want to really drop home the unison or some of these other you know uh, clindamycin things that nature again I, i'm not a fan of the clindamycin but again uh it's just something that we i see happen but do we have any data on even the necessity of doing that outside of what we spoke about earlier yeah
1: no i don't think any pharmacist is a fan of clindamycin um <laughs> But, but yeah, so um, there, like I mentioned before, the older studies did show a higher prevalence of anaerobic organisms isolated in the setting of aspiration pneumonia. Um, however, more recent studies have also evaluated this and found that they're not as prevalent as we once thought. So there was one study specifically looking at the microbiology of severe aspiration pneumonia in institutionalized elderly patients. Um, the study included around 100 patients and found that about 16% of the pathogens were anaerobes. Um, however, there were seven patients um, with anaerobes isolated who were treated with antibiotics that do not cover anaerobes, and six of those patients had an effective clinical response. So a lot of times, even if you do isolate an anaerobic organism, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's causing any type of infection. A lot of times we're colonized with different bugs, so um, that could be what's going on there. And there's also- There's also another study um, that looked at the role of anaerobes in patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia and aspiration pneumonia. Um, This was a prospective non-randomized interventional study, and they basically took sputum samples from 143 patients. Um, They took anaerobic and aerobic cultures, and um, out of all of the cultures that they collected in that study, they only isolated one anaerobic organism uh, in one sample, so it really shows how how little the prevalence of anaerobic organisms is um, in the setting of aspiration
0: pneumonia. Absolutely, that's that's great. And I really want to, because uh, I, I I talk very casual to my dogs and I always tell them, hey, you guys, guys, do it. This. this is trash, guys, don't do this. Like the data doesn't support this, we probably have overblown it and I, and you can probably go deep into this. But the more I look back into some of these studies, the more I realize like, oh, there are 17 patients or this was, it may have not even been humans. It may have been seventeen dogs that aspirated that they're trying to, to do yeah. this, and I'm always very intrigued by by that. But again, let me talk about data. Is there any? I should say evidence-based preferred therapy uh have we looked at a particular antibiotic and seen that this particular antibiotic does better in aspiration ammonia versus others do we have anything like that out there any kind of comparative data with different antibiotic regimens or traditionally is it more empiric and then we just see what, what happens with the culture
1: yeah so generally it's going to be more empiric the studies on aspiration pneumonia are generally pretty limited um so Generally when we're treating patients with aspiration pneumonia, we're gonna follow either the community acquired pneumonia guidelines or the hospital acquired pneumonia guidelines. And I think one place where pharmacists can have a really big role in this is understanding risk factors for multidrug resistant organisms. So if we have a patient coming in, they have no history of hospitalization or IV antibiotics in the past 90 days. Um, they have no history of MRSA or Pseudomonas. Um, they really don't need to be getting vancomycin or an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam like Zosin or Cepepine. Um, These are patients who we can just treat with ceftriaxone and then eventually hopefully switch them to an oral antibiotic to finish their course. Um, But again, a lot of these patients are gonna be treated empirically. It's very difficult to get sputum cultures on patients who are not intubated. Um, The sampling technique can be difficult as well. Um, So again, a lot of times these patients will be treated empirically. Um, If they do have risk factors for any of these multidrug-resistant organisms, or maybe they had a recent sputum culture with, like, an ESBL, E. coli, something like that, recent hospitalizations, um, then we can definitely tailor their empiric antimicrobial regimen to um, to target those uh, bacteria that we think might be causing the infection based on their history. So if they have ESBL in the past, we could potentially start them on meropenem if they've had IV antibiotics in the last 90 days, then they would be a candidate for vanxocin or vanxephepine.
0: Perfect, that's great. I think sometimes we have to look at it in that standpoint because again, I've always heard you know people say, oh, as soon as you get aspiration pneumonia, you have to get more aggressive. And I just don't know where that came from it. It seems to yeah. be... So it's just a worry. And I think sometimes we have a mechanism as to why the pneumonia or pneumonia has happened. And we think that's worse off. And it seems like the data doesn't necessarily say that same thing. So,
1: yeah, something I saw just a couple of days ago was the patient was started on satraxin for, for pneumonia. And then the provider found out that it was an aspiration event and then escalated to Zosyn. And I think the reason for that is just because they wanted the anaerobic coverage. But then along with that, you're covering much more broadly than you would be with ceftriaxone. You're getting the anaerobic coverage in addition to pseudomonal coverage and other like non-lactose fermenting gram-negative rods. Um, so we really don't need to be going that broadly for someone with no risk factors for pseudomonas.
0: And absolutely, and this is going to be a lot of these patients again. So I think this is a great intervention for us to make and get an ordering cue uh, for a lot of us. That's a, a rounding. We can make an intervention then. And I try to like leave a little nugget for the resident. If you guys are rounding with medical residents, hey, you probably don't want to do that. I'm going to say something if you do. <laughs> so uh-huh. it's something that we can kind of just give them a warning. Hey, you probably don't need to go that broad, and we yeah. can talk about this so let's kind of change change gears So we talk about some of the the background of this kind of you know how this occurs how we're we going to treat some of the data and guidelines about it but now thinking about this from i think the, the bigger picture from a clinical decision making and patient safety component as we we go through this process how can clinical farmers really balance this risk and benefit of antibiotic and antibiotic therapy in a treatment of Aspiration pneumonia because again there is a risk benefit component and how and how what are some things you're you're thinking about? What are some things you teach your your learners?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think that um, one of the biggest challenges is obviously balancing the risks and benefits of when we're starting antibiotics, so For example, I think if we had a patient who maybe had a witness aspiration event and the prescriber is wanting to start antibiotics immediately, if they're clinically stable, you know, no hypotension, no fevers, no other signs of infection, I think it might be okay to, you know, wait on starting antibiotics for a patient like that and just monitor them, see how they do. Um, And if if they remain stable, um, we could potentially hold, we could, you know, not start antibiotics on a patient like that. Um, However, if we have a patient coming in who may be aspirated and they're septic, for example, hypotensive, they have high fevers, um, elevated lactate, that's a patient you really don't want to wait to start antibiotics in. So that's more of a situation where you would want to be more aggressive up front. And then once they start to get better, you can start to scale back on the antibiotics that you're giving.
0: Absolutely. And that's a great way, of course, to look at it, because I think sometimes I've had some students get and some learners get very aggressive to where they really want to fight hard and not start antibiotics. And it's like, it's always this, this risk versus benefit. It's not very straightforward. It's never, it's always, it's not an always and a never versus a if this, then that type of scenario. So I like how you, you really broke that up and kind of look at your patient, look at the scenario. And again, some, a, a term that's got me in trouble in the past is the the, the term that Lexicon is where you just look at something in front of you and you think that applies to every scenario, When we're trained as clinical pharmacists from P4 year all the way up, we can look at a scenario, look at a situation, look at all the information and make a decision. Awful. At first, it's just, oh, no, you can't do this ever. So that's one thing to look at. Yeah, it's
1: almost never that black and white. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I I wish it was. It'd be my job so much easier. (laughs) It would be so much easier.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) But one of the things we're looking at as well, and we we mentioned this kind of the, the risk. And what are some adverse effects and drug interactions that you see that should be you know monitored when patients are actually receiving these these therapies? Because again, I think we don't think about that as much. But I think as we're getting deeper deeper into this this age of evidence based medicine, we're starting to see a lot more. So, what are some things you're looking for as far as drug interactions that are common for you, and some adverse effects that you're looking for in these patients?
1: Sure. So, in terms of adverse effects, I think obviously I'm going to mention C diff. Um, so. Pretty much any antibiotic we use can put patients at higher risk for c diff um, especially patients who are immunocompromised have a history of c diff and especially patients who are of older age um, greater than 65 and especially greater than 85 that really increases their risk of developing c diff and i think that's something we don't always think about is how high risk uh, third generation cephalosporins are for developing c diff so Um, We think kind of think of Quinda as like the worst offender when we uh, think about C. diff, but right under those, we have carbapenems, third and fourth generation cephalosporins, and fluoroquinolones as well, um, which we all use all three of those classes pretty frequently for pneumonia. So definitely important to uh, really think about, does this patient actually have pneumonia? And do we need to be starting these really broad spectrum antibiotics, um, especially when they might be high risk for C. diff? Kind of moving away from that now, uh, beta lactams generally they're pretty well tolerated, pretty safe. Um, But one big thing that we need to remember for beta lactams is they most of the time require renal dose adjustments. And if you don't really adjust, then patients could be at higher risk for seizures. Um, So that uh, accumulation of beta lactams can result in seizures. So that's definitely an important uh, monitoring parameter for for our patients being admitted. Um, In terms of um, atypical coverage, there are some drug interactions that come with azithromycin. um, So it does cause some QTC prolongation. Uh, So we definitely wanna get a good med history on the patient, see what what other medications they might be taking, get a baseline EKG um, just to evaluate that QTC. Um, If they do have a prolonged QT interval, then we could potentially use doxycycline instead. Um, However, doxycycline also does have its own um, uh, adverse effects, including photosensitivity and esophageal irritation. So you wanna counsel patients to sit up when they're taking it. This is more for the outpatient uh, setting. Um, and then when we get to our more broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, similar things with our beta-lactam, cefepime is one of the worst offenders in terms of neurotoxicity and seizure risk. So again, definitely very important to uh, renally adjust if patients have uh, AKI or CPD. Um, and then vancomycin, we're very familiar with the um, TDM that's required with vancomycin, AUC-based monitoring, and the increased risk of acute kidney injury that comes along with it. Uh, something else we might see occasionally for uh, pneumonia is linazolid. Um, Lanazolid does have its own set of drug interactions. Um, it does have um, interactions with any serotonergic agents um, because of the MAOI inhibition. Um, it could be it could cause some drug interactions, resulting in serotonin syndrome. So that's always important to watch out for.
0: Perfect, and that's one of the things that you kind of is, is a lot to kind of consider with all of this. And I think that's a pretty a, a good spot for for us to kind of wrap up again. We we, we talked about quite a bit from the background of this. Uh, we went through talking about what the guidelines kind of promoting again, really get t- targeting on the lung abscesses and other and other components that make this where you should use more anaerobic coverage and then really not making this very different than other pneumonias, really just looking at your risk factors and things of that nature. Uh, all of us can get cultures. We can make sure we can find a way to get these urine antigens and uh, MRSA nasal swaps to kind of help down downstream. But that's really some of the, the big things And really, again, knowing that we don't have to be super aggressive for a lot of these you know, stable patients and then really taking a risk versus benefit approach as we go through because of course, as you mentioned lastly, there are side effects, there are drug interactions that we have to, to to look forward to. That's kind of like a, a, a quick wrap-up. Is there any final thoughts that you have about aspiration pneumonia? If you can really just get everyone's attention and just mention something, what will be the thing for you?
1: Sure. So I think the biggest thing we really don't need to cover for anaerobes. So we, I always see added on when patients have a suspected aspiration pneumonia or you know, I see prescribers switch to a much broader agent. We really don't need to be doing that. We can follow the CAP guidelines and the HAP and VAP guidelines um, and their recommendations for antimicrobial therapy. We don't really need to be doing anything additional unless we have a lung abscess or empyema.
0: Perfect. Well, I'm going to go ahead and close this out there. Again, thank you. Uh, that's my comp coming on. This has been really informative. I hope we, we, we got a few more things we're gonna be cooking up in the in the background. But this is super exciting to start this series, and I look forward to doing much more work. And hopefully people really enjoy this. So if you like this, great, just go ahead and let us know. Uh of course we're gonna put a bunch of clips and things out there, and a lot of the information is gonna be in the show notes. So we're super excited about this just new exploration, and we're gonna end it the same way we end every episode, guys. You don't have to be a pharmacist, you're not working at ED, but everything you do, make sure you form so hard. <laughs> Aussie scratches his head.
1: Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.